0: Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about a, a massive topic, the Bible, everything about it. So we're going to cover it all in 15 minutes, Jeff, is that all right? Um, no, but as, as if you if this is your first time, you'll see these pieces of paper around. Um, the way this works is Jeff and I have a conversation for about 15 minutes, and uh, any time during that, feel free to, you know, if you're hungry, we have got food around, uh, grab a drink if you want, you're not going to disturb us, um, but you can also scan this QR code and you can submit any question anonymously Uh, it doesn't have to be related to the topic at all, it can be about anything and we will do our absolute best to to give an answer Uh, but tonight we are going to talk a little bit about the Bible and uh, hopefully it will be somewhat practical and interesting but uh, one of the things that in talking about this I, I wanted to at least start with the first time maybe that you remember reading the Bible for yourself Can you remember what that was like? And and can you describe it for us? Well, the answer is no. (laughs) I I cannot
1: remember the first time I read the Bible. I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I was um, probably brought to Christ when I was about seven years old. So I was sort of raised in the church and a church where we were encouraged to read the scripture and to memorize scripture even. So um, really the Bible was a part of my life in the very early days. What I would say is that I've grown older. The Bible has come to mean a much, much more to me. Um, and I think the thing that is most compelling to me about the Scriptures is that it seems to me, as I read through, that it's a book that describes me. And I think many people come to the Bible with the hope of encountering God, and I think that's true. But one of the reasons that I find it so compelling is that when I read through the Scriptures, I encounter myself. Um, great example of this is the Apostle Paul on one occasion says, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me. And as I've grown older, you know, I look back over the course of my life, and that's a description of me. There have been so many times in my life when the very things I want to do, I haven't done. And the very things I hate, I find myself doing. And I I realize just how fallen and, and how broken I am and it drives me to my knees, and it drives me to Christ. And I think that's the most compelling thing about the scripture to me, is that this is not just some sort of foreign book, not just some sort of ancient document, not just some sort of dead letter, but it's a living word, and it really does speak to me where I am. Um, It's an apt description not only of God's grace, love, and mercy, but it's also an apt description of me as a human being.
0: Yeah, I I think I was surprised when, um, I mean, I was raised in a Christian home as well, and uh, probably the only experience I had with the Bible um, was maybe like the phone book where you just kind of open it up and you know put a finger down somewhere and that was kind of all right this is God's word for me today but um, it I was surprised when I sat down to actually try to read through books of the Bible even um, I, I think I started in the New Testament and I was too struck with just how on the one hand it was easy to to read the scriptures because I did see myself I mean that passage in Paul, you're like, yeah, this is describing a little bit of my life, and it does, uh, you know, one of the questions we'll get to, how this book, written so long ago, what does it have to say to us today? Well, it, it shows me that much of the human heart has not changed throughout the histories, uh, throughout the history of, of humanity. Um, and, yeah, so I, I remember trying to read the Bible for my myself the first time, probably about senior year of high school, and, um, it was, uh, you know, I got through Genesis, I remember, and then it was kind of like, okay, the Exodus story, I remember a little bit of that. And like everybody who's done that Bible in a year plan, you get to Leviticus and Numbers, and you're like, oh, boy, this is, I don't know where I am and what's going on. I didn't know how anything of that fit together. So starting in in the New Testament was definitely something that was good, but I was I was struck with how much it actually meant to me. Um, so maybe in addition to just relating Uh, having it be relatable what would you say to somebody who's like this book is written at least 2,000 years ago some parts go back to uh, almost 4,000 years ago how does something like that, what does that have for us today in the 21st century
1: well I think one of the things that everybody's looking for in life is meaning I think that's one of the things that gives value and purpose to human existence I think when all is said and done everybody's looking for that there's that great scene, I don't know how many of you have read um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, but there's this great scene where Frankenstein has created this monster, and he realizes what he's created, and he flees from it. And there's a, sort of a final chapter in the book, and he's fleeing from this monster as far as he can get. And this creature is pursuing him, and there's one point where Frankenstein cries out, and said, I want to know, what do you want from me? And the creature shouts back, I want to know why you made me thus. That's the bottom line. This creature is seeking its master because he wants to know why he's here. What's his purpose? What's his his raison d'etre? What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of it all? Is it all vanity? And I think when you read the scriptures, because I believe that it is God's word to us, that's where you find meaning and purpose in life. That's where you're going to find value in life. Otherwise, you're going to live lives of frustration and discouragement. And you're going to spend all of your years looking for purpose. And I think that's one of the most compelling things somebody says to me, why to read the, why should I read the scripture? I think first of all, what you'll discover is that it really is a word that speaks to us. It, it, is, it is an extraordinary thing. It is true. It's written across centuries, but nevertheless it is the vehicle through which God still continues to speak to us today. And if you read it as I said, what you'll find is you'll find yourself in there. You'll discover yourself in there. And you will discover a relationship with God. And there's a a great verse in the the 21st chapter of John's Gospel where John is rounding up this, this whole biography of Jesus' life. And he comes to a point where he says, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And if somebody asks me, why should I read That's the reason. You're looking for meaning. You're looking for purpose. You're looking for value. You want to know there's more to it than just make a lot of money and die in the end. And you find that in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you find that through the study of the scripture.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we talked about meaning and purpose uh, at least a few weeks back. Um And how cruel, honestly, in in a way that our world today says that in order for you to find meaning and purpose, you have to find it somewhere deep inside of yourself and express it. And that is a hopeless task when you have to discover your own meaning and purpose. Um, Meaning and purpose has to come from the outside. It has to be something grander than yourself for it to truly be substantial. Um, And, yeah, I think when I look at the scriptures, uh, you... I think for most of my life, I just thought of it as like this rule book that, okay, there's things you don't do, things that you're supposed to do. But once I got, okay, the overall story, that okay, there's lots of different books. I mean, there's 66 books in this Bible, um, but there's also one overarching story. And when you get the idea that God has made us to be in relationship with Him, and that's the entire theme of the Bible, that... Actually, from the very beginning, God made it good, and then right there in the third chapter, things have gone downhill quickly. Um, that's explaining why the world is the way it is. It explains why my heart is the way it is, why the society is the way it is. And yet we see grace even there from the beginning. And that's what one of the things I love about the Bible is that oftentimes people will pit the Old Testament against the New Testament. We'll, we can talk about that later. but um, We see God relentlessly, relentlessly pursuing his people from Genesis 3, and it's a story of bringing his people, bringing a people back to relationship with himself. It's not about simply doing rules. It's about having this relationship with God, and that's the purpose of our lives. It's a pretty radical claim to say that the Bible is God's word. Um, a lot of people have a hard time even believing in God today, but um, nonetheless, the Bible says this. Where uh, Throughout, how can the whole thing be god's word um and and how do we have how is that believable even what would you say to somebody who struggles with that well i think it's just what you said
1: the bible is you know in, in one sense it's a book but in many respects it's a library and it has many writers there's no question about that i mean there are all different types of writers all different types of genre but what i like to point out to people it is it is a book that has many writers but one author one author and one theme that runs from the beginning, from the book of Genesis, the whole way through to the book of Revelation, and that's the saving purposes of God in history. And it's, it's not sort of a, a clunky thing. Uh, again, you, you made the point of, you know, sometimes you, you, you're struggling with something in your life, whether it's doubt, or lust, or whatever it is, and and you think that it's like the teacher's handbook. You go to the index, and you look up a verse, and you point to that, and that's going to be the answer to that. That's not the way it is. It is the story of God's working in and through flesh and blood, men and women, people like you and me, with faults, foibles, flaws, uh, people that are capable of great good, people who are capable of great evil, people who have great victories, people who have great defeats, and yet God is working in and through them. And it's through their lives, through their experiences, that he speaks to us even today. And I think this is what Paul means when he says, all scripture is theopneustos. And, and the Greek means, God breathed. It's God breathing out. Um, the old King James Version used the word inspired. Mm-hmm. But that's breathing in. And actually what the Expired. word is, is it's, it's, it's an expiring. Yeah. It's, it's God breathing out. And it's an extraordinary thing. But he does, in and through the pages of Scripture, he continues to speak to people even today.
0: So how, I mean, I hear a lot of times... um, (laughs) Sorry about that. Yeah, let's do that. Is that better? Yeah, Sweet. Um, You know, well, the Bible's written by human beings. So how can it possibly be God's Word? I think that's what I was trying to get at um, in the question before. I I hear that a lot of times, like, as a way to kind of you know, well, we know that the Bible was really written by humans, maybe compiled by humans. Like, so how do you square that with the claim that it's God's word?
1: Well, I mean, this goes to the whole question of revelation. How does God make himself known? I mean, the only way, if you think about it, that you and I are capable, and really this is, you alluded to this, this is the essence of Christianity. and This is what I would always say to somebody. Christianity, even though we oftentimes say that it's a religion, is not so much religion as it is relationship. Religion is a series of of systems of do's and don'ts and uh, all sorts of things that you have to do in order to get into a right relationship with God or to make sure that God is not angry or frustrated. But Christianity at its heart is really a relationship. And it's really about a person. And if you think about the other religions of the world, you can take out the major figures from those other religions and you'll still have the religion. You'll still have the rules. You'll still have the uh, regulations. You certainly have that in Islam. You even have it to a certain degree in Judaism. If you take the primary figure, Jesus Christ, out of Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. There's nothing unique to it. Uh, The way John Stott put it, he said, if you take Jesus Christ out of the equation, what you end up is like a picture frame without the picture. You end up with a casket without a jewel. You end up with a a body without the life in it, without the breath. And so. I think at its heart, that's what Christianity is all about. And it's when people say, well, you know, how in the world could, you know, this this book was written so long ago. What God has done is he's made himself known. That's the only way that you and I can have a relationship with him, finite creatures, is if the infinite makes himself known to us. And he does that. He does it in general revelation and the things that have been made. He does it through the pages of scripture. And the way that the scripture comes into being is through the inspiration and the guidance of God the Holy Spirit, the yeah. third person of the Trinity. So it's a big question, yeah. but you're going to really, the whole notion of revelation and the third person of the Trinity, right. which is God the Holy Spirit. Yeah. yeah,
0: and through, I mean, throughout the Bible, the, the writers of it are aware of the fact that they're God's mouthpieces, speaking for God. I mean, this is 2 Peter um, chapter 1. I just wanted to read some of this here. Uh, we, did not defollow, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we, but we were the eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, and then going down further, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to, you, to which you will do well to pay attention as the lamp shining in a dark place, uh, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And what what I get from that, what what that's saying is that, yes, this is in fact through human beings, but God who made everything uses human beings and their fallenness in their particular characteristics in their gifts and abilities and all their backgrounds to produce exactly what God has intended to say to his people about himself. And so... Yeah, it's written by humans, but it's primarily and foremostly God and his word. And so that has tremendous implications, how we approach this book. It um, does. And so the, the place that we have in the life of the church, um, in, in our worship, I mean, the, the scriptures reading from this, we hear from God in, in the beginning of the Christian life and throughout our Christian life, we we need to hear from God. Um, Let's see here. There was a question I wanted to ask. So uh, I think when it, it gets hard to actually understand parts of it, um, it, it, how do we make sense of maybe some of the, the troubling parts or hard to understand parts of the Bible? I, if it's God's word, it has his own characteristics, which means that it's holy. It's, um, it's authoritative. It's, um, it's obviously understandable if he's revealing to us and accommodating our own language He's intending it for us to be understood. Um, But why are there so many places in it that are just so darn hard to understand?
1: Well, I think one of the things you have to say when you come... If we come with the assumption that this is God's word, it only stands to reason that you and I, as creatures, as finite beings, and as fallen beings, should come with a level of humility. And I think that's the first thing. When you approach the scripture, you can't sit in judgment over it Um, you have to come in humility with an open mind, with an open heart expecting God to speak and yes, I think that sometimes just our fallenness our own brokenness as human beings will make it difficult for us to understand Mm -hmm. And, and so I don't think it should be surprising to us that there are some passages that yes, are difficult, some passages that are troubling, but I think if we trust God and trust his word, even the things that we don't understand, God's either going to make those clear to us as time goes by, or I think what we're going to discover as time goes by, that perhaps they're not as troubling to us as we thought they were. So I think the critical thing is to come with humility. Now, if there are specific issues that we need to deal with, we can deal with those, and we can can struggle with those. But I think part of it is, is that we come with our own expectations. We come with certain assumptions. Uh, We have ideas about what we think human beings are. We have ideas about what we think God is. And we bring those assumptions to the table. And I think when you come to Scripture, when I say you come with humility before the Word of God, one of the things you have to do is set aside your assumptions. So, for example, if you have the assumption that people are basically good, that human beings are basically good people, And when you come to a troubling passage in the Old Testament where it talks about the Israelites wiping out the Canaanites, you're going to view the Canaanites as innocent victims because people are basically good. Whereas perhaps if you come with the idea that people are basically fallen, then the judgment that is meted out on the Canaanites, maybe that's justice rather than injustice. So I think there's a point where we have to come with humility not only to the word, we have to set aside our assumptions about ourselves, about other people, and our assumptions about God. What we think he ought to do and how he ought to act and who he ought to be.
0: Yeah. I, I forget one of the places in the Psalms but where God has an indictment on his people. for, you, And he says um, for you thought I was like yourselves. Yeah. We have we, we make God into our own image far too often. And even just hearing you say that um, about you know, possible justice, right? I mean, that, that just isn't the way our culture is. Like, our culture values freedom, human equality. All of these things are actually from Christianity and rooted in Christianity from the scriptures. Um, but the scriptures are so full of God's, what, what he declares to be true, that there's parts of that that really rub against the grain. And I think that's certainly one of them, that we are, in fact, fallen. Uh, but it explains so much If you can face that, I think. Um, Well, I think
1: when the Bible talks about freedom, it doesn't necessarily mean freedom to do anything you want. Right. It means freedom to be able to do things that previous you were incapable of doing. Yeah. Freedom is not the same thing as autonomy. Mm. None of us is autonomous. That's just a fact. So I think that's something we have to keep in mind, too. Yes, freedom is a very important thing. But what the Bible means by freedom and what modern society means by freedom can be two radically different concepts.
0: Yeah. Well, let's try and get practical here. Just as, um, I'm assuming a lot of folks here are Christians um, and have tried to read the Bible, I'm guessing. What would, what would you say to somebody who is struggling, uh, maybe trying to get back into reading the Bible, um, maybe finding it difficult? What advice would you give them?
1: I think the first thing I would say is this. Don't start with the Old Testament. <laughs> um, you know, the old saying is uh, the beginning is a very good place to start. But I think for many of us, coming as we do, uh, from a 21st century, postmodern modern perspective, um, the Old Testament is going to seem like a foreign world to us. And it is. I mean, it, it is foreign to us in many respects. Um, the first time I ever went to the Middle East, and I've been there many times to the Holy Land, I, it was a very foreign environment. It was nothing like what I imagined it was going to be like. Mm-hmm. Just very. People were different. Cultures were different. Food was different. Smells were different. Everything was different. What I think the starting place, if if you've never read the Bible or if you think I'd like to get in, as you said, you start with Genesis, well, that's relatively familiar, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, you know, (laughs) boiling a kid in its own milk and all that. What in the world is all of this? You bog down and you get stopped. You get frustrated. What I would suggest to you is you start, and this is really where the apostles started, and that is in the Gospels, with Jesus Christ. He is the lens, his life, death, resurrection, ascension is the lens through which we understand the Old Covenant. It is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. So the real place to start is, I would suggest, start with the Gospel. The Gospel of Mark's a great one because it's dynamic, it's relatively short, there's an economy of language, there's not that high-soaring theology of John, but it's it's there and you're, it's, it's dynamic. It's like reading a Grisham novel almost. <laughs> it just, Goes right through; it's a great tempo to it. And I would start there, and after you've read through the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John—then I would go through the rest of the New Testament. I'd start mm. with Paul's epistles and so forth, and only then, once you understand the basic story, then go back, mm. because the Old Testament is the shadows of the things that are to come. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's the community of anticipation, whereas the New Testament is the community of fulfillment.
0: Yeah, the. What is it, Augustine, who says that the Old Testament is—it's uh, like a, a dimly lit—or no, this is—I can't remember who—it wasn't Augustine, but it's like a room that's dimly lit that has all the furniture in there, and then the New Testament—it's like the lights come on. I said that. No, oh, that was you. Light. Okay, yeah, <laughs> I knew it was somebody important. Oh man, <laughs> change your life. That yeah, that was great. Oh man, I'll never forget it. So. Um, was I going to say yeah I, I think you've got to get the story overall and Jesus himself says in the end of Luke in 24 that Moses and the prophets and it's all about me it's all about me and he says that so it, you as Christians I mean we do have the Jewish scriptures that are built um, and the Christian builds upon the Jewish scriptures and see them truly as fulfilled in Christ um, because that's what Jesus himself claimed And so uh, seeing that the overall story is helpful and there's a number of different tools. Um, that are out there available to see that. And I think it's important not to read the Old Testament strictly as a, as a Jew would read the Old Testament, because if Jesus is right, then we it's, it's um, lacking to only end up at a conclusion that's maybe moralistic and not getting to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we could say a lot more, and I think we're probably going to cut it at that point. We have a lot of really interesting questions that I could keep going with, but I'm curious, Mary Hollis, do we have... Uh, anything that people have sent in now about this is such a big topic i mean we really can't do justice to everything but i at least wanted to touch base on can the can i just say
1: one other thing before she jumps in about yeah. r- r- where to start pick a modern translation in other words don't pull out the James King King version of the bible that you have in your house most of us don't speak elizabethan english most of us. Most of us don't. <laughs> Brian McGreevy, you know, Maybe. probably spoke Elizabethan English. Little <laughs> but yeah. most of us don't speak Elizabethan English. That's just foreign to us. So there are some really good modern translations out there. The English Standard Version, the New International Version is a really good version of the Bible we've never started. Um, this is a book that is meant to be read, studied, and understood. And as I said, it, it's a book that speaks to us across the ages. So, um, you don't have to get the these and the vows. There are better translations out there. To be honest with you, the King James Version is not the most accurate translation of the Bible anyway. So, there are better translations.
0: Yeah. How we doing?
2: Great. Can you guys hear me? Yep. Okay, so if you haven't already asked a question, you have one, go ahead and submit it. If you're not going to submit a question, you can still scan the QR code and upload the questions you're interested in hearing. So,
0: yes, and there's a, you can like the questions that have been submitted, too. I forgot to say that. Sorry about that. Yep. Um, so, so
2: if you like or upvote the question, or if you want, you can downvote it. But I'm going to go just in the order of what has the most upvotes for now. Okay. <laughs> so with three likes, we start with, can we really trust that we have the original text of the Bible through all these years?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, it's, it's a
1: very good question. So,
0: um, kind of touches on with what you just said about the translation with the, yeah, uh, the translations of the Bible. Changing. I mean, it is
1: true. Um, can we really? Well, let me start with the New Testament for just a moment, and then I'll just say something briefly about the Old Testament and, and, and the way that these books were transmitted from one generation to the next. So the New Testament, it's a fact. This is not my opinion. This is a fact. It's a fact of history that the New Testament is the most well attested to a book of antiquity. We have more copies or fragments of the New Testament than any other book of antiquity. The only other book that even comes close to this is Caesar's Gallic Wars, which was written 100 years after the events. We have portions of the New Testament that go back to within 25 to 30 years of the events themselves. Now let me just tell you a little story and just show you how close we are when we're, when we're dealing with documents like that. When I was uh, the rector of a church in the upstate, a little town called Chiraw, St. David's Church, I went to visit a parishioner of mine. Um, he was an older gentleman, his name was Mr. Kimmel. Mr. Kimmel was a World War II veteran, and he served in the Navy. And when I walked into his house, I saw this photograph on the wall, black and white photograph of a ship's company on the deck. And being a history buff, I was really curious about that. I asked him about that he said, oh yeah, that was the ship's company. And I said, tell me about your experience. Sometimes veterans are reluctant. But he was very open and very excited to talk about it. He was 18 when he went in, in 1942. He was part of a convoy going across the Atlantic. I don't know if you've seen the, the new Tom Hanks movie, Greyhound, but that's what they were doing. They were accompanying troop transports across the Atlantic, 1942, 1943 and they got attacked by a submarine. And he said, they sounded general quarters, everybody's running to their stations. I had to run past the bridge in order to get to my battle station, and I could hear the captain shouting, where are they, where are they? And he said, I knew exactly where they are. Now, this is a seaman in third class or something like that. And I said, well, how do you know where they were? He said, as I was running up the deck to my battle station, I looked over the side and I saw a periscope come right up out of the water. Now, when he told me that story, I felt the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Because I was as close to that event as I could possibly get without actually being there. When you are reading, for example, the writings of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, you are as close to those events as you can possibly be without getting there. And we have so many copies, so many fragments of the New Testament, that we know that what we have is an accurate translation. Here's another illustration, just an example. For a long time, many scholars assumed that the Gospel of John, which is unique, when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, those are called the synoptic gospels, they're very similar, they share a lot of things in common, common sources, so when you get to John, John is unique. Nobody denies that. But the assumption was that because John was unique and because it employs a lot of Greek philosophical language, language of logos, word, and that sort of thing, This document must have been written much later than what it actually purports. In other words, this can't be written by somebody who was an eyewitness or close to the eyewitnesses. It must have been written decades. Some scholars assume end of the second century. Now, that's a long time, maybe 100 years after the events. All of that has changed. Let me just give you an example of how it's changed. Back in 19, I want to say, 75, a mummy was uncovered in Cairo. And as they were unwrapping the mummy, they found scraps of paper. Now, the mummy dated to the very first decade of the second century. This is the beginning of the second century. As they're unwrapping this mummy, they find scraps of paper, and the scholars recognize it. It's written in Greek. And as they look at it and begin to translate it, they discover that it's a portion of the Gospel of John, the prologue to John's Gospel. Now this is the beginning of the second century. They know that the Gospel of John originated just south of Jerusalem, southeast of Jerusalem, in an area known as Qumran. So they know that it had to have originated hundreds of miles to the north, been used by a community, because parchments were very expensive, fallen into fragments, found its way the whole way to Cairo and into the wrappings of this mummy and all by the 1st century, or the beginning of the 2nd century, century. which means that there's no way that this document could have been written at the end of the 2nd century. It had to date at least to the latter part of the 1st century. That just goes to show you, and archaeology has really been the friend of the Bible. As archaeological discoveries have come in, the trustworthiness of the Bible has never been undermined. It's always been supported. Mm -hmm. Now that's just the New Testament. Obviously, when we're dealing with the Old Testament, we're we're dealing with documents that are much older than that, even. But in 1946, here's a perfect example. In 1946, there was a little shepherd boy in that same region of Qumran, now down near the Dead Sea. He was a shepherd boy. So this is relatively recent. This is at the end of World War II. He's going along, and he's throwing rocks. Little boys will do that from from time to time. That area is filled with caves, and he's throwing these rocks into a cave high above. And he hears the crash of pottery. Sounds like a window break. He climbs up in there, and he finds these large, about three foot high jars, clay jars, in which there are old parchment scrolls. What he has discovered becomes known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls have nothing to do with the New Testament. But they do have portions of the Old Testament. Mm. And so when these were discovered, these were the oldest parchments that stands. Oldest parchments were available to scholars of the Old Testament. And everybody was eager to see how accurate. These are the oldest versions. We have. How accurate is our version that we have in modern Bibles today to these oldest versions? And you know that they were word for word identical. Now, part of that has to do with the care that was taken in ancient communities to transmit. We are a literary society. They were an oral society. Most things were translated orally, and great care was taken. And it's the way they translated it. Now, if I told you, how many of you, just a show of hands, how many of you know the Gettysburg Address by heart? And if you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you to say it. <laughs> so how many of you know the Gettysburg Address by heart? One of the most famous speeches in American history. All right. All right, I'm going to say Are you, the word are you to raising you. your hand? Yeah, I do know it. Wow. <laughs> um, um, I, I believe so, you. <laughs> yeah, I believe um, so let me ask you this. I'm going to say a line. You say it, the next line. Amazing grace. How sweet. How sweet. So, that saved the wretch. I, like I once was lost. But now I am found. found. Was blind. But, but now I see. How did you do that? Part of it was, it was carefully transmitted to you. It was translated to you in the form of a song and so forth. Makes it easier for you to memorize the same amount of material without just fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Put that to song and you'll memorize Sure. That's the way ancient societies transmitted things. And they took great care in doing that so that mistakes would not be made. So when we're looking at the Bible, you are dealing with a document that is the most accurate document from all of antiquity. Even the most radical and skeptical of scholars will tell you that if you get rid of the Old and New Testament, every ancient text has to disappear into oblivion. So you're dealing with a trustworthy book. And that's a scientific fact.
0: <laughs> that's great. Thank you. Yeah. What do we got next? Okay.
2: Up next is, why do we keep some parts of the Old Testament but throw out others? Yeah.
0: That's a great question. You know, I there are a few things that come to mind, mm-hmm. The you know, the Old Testament dietary laws. Um, I, I think the most helpful way that I've heard this question answered is that, we, um, we look to the entire Old Testament as God's word, so we're not throwing out anything. However, some things, as we said, are fulfilled in Christ because they were the shadows pointing towards the reality of who Jesus was. So when you look at the laws in particular, which is, I'm assuming this question is kind of getting at, um, there's a helpful uh, way that people, Christians throughout centuries have understood the Old Testament law, which was uh, there was a moral law that expresses God's character, and those things are timeless because God is timeless and we're meant to be like him. Uh, so we, f- we follow that moral law. Um, there was the civil law, which was made specifically for the nation of Israel, um, and, and the Christians are not a theocratic society anymore, and so we don't uh, follow that, those civil laws the same way that the nation of Israel were intended to, and then the, the ceremonial laws, uh, all the shedding of, of the blood and everything, obviously those make a little bit more sense. All those sacrifices and all that was going on in the temple, all of that was pointing towards the ultimate sacrifice. The book of Hebrews gets at this so well. All of that was climaxed in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So the ceremonial laws, all of that has been um, done away with because Jesus is the, the ultimate fulfillment of it. So the, the moral, the civil, the ceremonial laws. I think it's probably the shortest uh, but helpful three categories that I can find to explain why some of the laws uh, we, we maybe wouldn't follow uh, as Christians today. Anything you would add to that? No, that sounds great. That's good. Alright, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's like I liked your answer first so I'm going to keep going. Alright, we're knocking them out of the park here. So, any others?
2: Okay, so kind of as a follow-on to that one, I think you kind of hit the main theme of it, but it asks when non believers say that it's fine to do something that the Bible has said is bad, how can we explain it to them when it also tells us not to eat pork?
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I think that, um, and it's a great question, but you've got, you know, a lot of, that's one of the buzz things in society today is there's not the nuance to the Old Testament laws. And so they'll, they'll say, kind of like, you know, you put your finger somewhere in the Bible and you can find anything to justify your reasoning for doing it. And so, well, um, why is that law there? We have to remember that God has spoken, but he does it to a particular people, always at a particular place and a particular time. And it fits in the overall story of it. So I think what I would try to do if I were talking to somebody who says, well, God says don't do this, but it also says don't eat pork. It also says rise, kill, and eat in the New Testament. Where, so when you have almost contradictory things and in the book of Acts, for instance... Um, God the Holy Spirit tells Peter to, to kill and eat animals. And so uh, that, that no food is now off, um, off limits now. And Paul says the same thing uh, in Corinthians, that um, basically what we can do... So when you're looking at different scriptures that may appear to be saying different things, you have to take the context into consideration. So the Old Testament laws... That was, particularly the pork, was um, part of the dietary laws for the nation of Israel. And the whole point of those laws was to remind them who they were. Every time they ate a meal, it was to remind them that they were saved, that they were set apart by, by God the Father. Um, and, and all of those, I can go, if you're interested in that question, Like, please talk to me afterwards. There's a lot of... Um, scholar named Mary Douglas has written a lot on the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament why we um, why the Old Testament people of God weren't allowed to eat certain things and there's been a lot of debate as to maybe what's the rationale behind one thing and that they're allowed to eat and not the other um, and there's been a lot of different hypotheses for that but yeah it, it's, it's at, the bottom, at the end of the day it was primarily for Israel there and so I, I think giving some nuance to um, two different parts of the Bible, and explaining that you know the moral law is something that obviously makes sense that we follow, uh, but but we aren't the nation of Israel. It's important to notice that Christians aren't intended to be uh, this theocratic nation the way that Israel was.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Israel was intended to be marked out among the nations of the world to be unique and this was a reminder of their uniqueness but all of those things as we've said already all of those old testament laws and restrictions and sacrifices they are the shadows of the things that are to come and that's why i say where you start to read the bible is in the new testament because jesus is the fulfillment of all those things and your understanding of why they were how they exist and how they have passed from the scene can only be understood in the fulfillment in christ One of the things that happens on Good Friday, you may recall, is that when Jesus died, when he gave up his spirit, a number of miracles took place on Good Friday. Of course, you know that everything became dark, um, darkness over the land for about three hours. We're told that some of the faithful who had died were resurrected, at least for a period, and at least were seen. Uh, One of the other things that happened was a hardcore Roman soldier was converted, There on the scene, surely this was the Son of God. And the most dramatic thing that happened was that there was a great earthquake that shook the foundation of the temple and the temple curtain was torn in two. Now that temple curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was the place that only the high priest could go and he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement to make sacrifice for the people. That was the only way a person had access to God. That temple curtain is torn in two. From top to bottom, symbolizing the fact that all of that Old Testament system now has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go through the blood of goats and lambs in order to find atonement. You now have access. So I think, yes, many of these things have to be understood in that light. And that's why I like to say look, the Bible has a simple message, but it is not a simplistic book. Mm-hmm. This is a book for grown ups, folks. This is a book for grown ups and we have to read it as grown-ups. Um, and you know, you can make the Bible say, I'll say this much, if you take a passage out of context, you can make it say anything you want it to say. Years ago, um, when my wife was expecting our first child, we've had four, and um, we didn't have a single child delivered that was under nine pounds. So when my wife was nine months pregnant, she was very pregnant. You know, as, as the Bible said, great with child. And uh, <laughs> we were up in North Charleston. This is before any of you were born. We're up in North Charleston, and we're at the Disney store. There used to be a Disney store up there in the mall. And she's in there looking for things. And this young, attractive girl walks in front of me. I was not looking at her. <laughs> but I just looked in her general direction. At which point my wife says, remember what the Bible says. And so what does the Bible say? She says, if your eye offends me, I will pluck it out. <laughs> <laughs> you can take a passage out of context and really make it say anything you want it to say. And I think that's one of the things we have to be careful. So people can say, oh, yeah, well, you're not allowed to eat pork. But you're allowed to do this. Look, folks, we're grown-ups. This is a book for adults. Read it. Read it as it was intended to be read and when you do that with humility I think you find that a lot of
0: these things begin
1: to fall into place it's a great question
0: but I think it gets at I mean that's one of the reasons why we want to talk about what the Bible actually is tonight because it has to do with what you know there's a unified story but there's something that actually changes from the Old to the New Testament and that nuance is not easily necessarily understood and so it takes care uh, and it takes thinking um, in community so great question
2: says, the Bible says to obey my husband. Do you think women are subservient to men in the Bible and should continue?
1: Okay. That's a great question. That's a great question. So let me just go ahead and because the Bible says, you know, (laughs) well let's see what it really says Um, because I think that's helpful. Um, The place to turn to would be to the book of Ephesians. All right. And in Ephesians chapter 5, this is what it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And all the men in the room say, Amen. But you can not only take a passage out of context, you can stop too early when you read a text. So what does that text go on to say? The very next verse says, and husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, yes, um, there is a sense in which wives submit to the authority of their husbands. But husbands, in any decision that they make, do what? Love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He died for it. Now, I've sometimes said a wife might have an easier time being obedient to her husband if she knows that every decision he makes is based upon what is best for her because he loves her more than he loves himself. What you have in Ephesians chapter 5 is not one party submitting to the other and one party lording that authority over another, what it is a picture of is mutual submission. The church obeys its Lord. Why? Because the Lord so loves the church that he gave himself for it. It's a picture of mutual submission. Uh, you get this in one of the old Anglican prayer books. And one of the old Anglican prayer books, um, the old 1662 prayer book, women promised in their marriage vows to love, honor, and obey. And do you know what the husband promised? He said, And with my body I thee worship. See, she submits to his authority, spiritual authority. He worships the ground that she walks on, in a sense. And with all his worldly goods, I do thee endow. It's not a picture of one party having complete control and the other one submitting under all circumstances. It is a picture of mutual submission. It's a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. That's what marriage really is all about. So it's a beautiful thing. I actually had a marine couple and they requested to be married under the 1662 prayer book for that very reason. She said, I have no problem being submissive to his authority if I know that he worships the
0: grounds I walk on and always puts me first before all yeah, I think it's, that's way better than I could say, but I think that, um, you, you know, the, the buzzword submission is what it's, as I said earlier, there's parts of the Bible that really make the hairs on our necks stand up in our culture today and rub against the grain, and that's certainly one of those words. Um, but it, you realize that, you know, Jesus, when he told his disciples that they have authority, they were to never lord it over them. Mm-hmm. And you realize that Jesus himself submitted. He submitted to the Father. Now, you're going to tell me that Jesus is less than or not as important to the Father? Well, that's heresy. So the reality is that within the, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, you have submission, which is an act of love. It is, it is mutual submission. But there's certainly no inequality by any means in between a husband and a wife. And just to get real practical, I mean, both my wife and I, I mean, we... We take that verse to mean what it, it says. But it, it, she has, she's a far better leader than I am. She is actually far smarter than I am, too. Um, she's not super good with money, but she, just about everything else she's better with than I am. So um, wh- what does that mean? Well, I, of course, ask her opinion, and she asks my opinion. There's none of this, like, well, because I'm the man, and I'm the spiritual head, I, you know, this is my realm, and you're not to do that. You just need to be in the kitchen... Uh, you know, raising children, none of that. It, it is absolutely, even, that's such a farce for a complementarian view, which is what takes that passage literally. It's, you no, know, both of them, uh, the husband and the wife, relying on one another, mutually I- including one another, um, but there is, there is a pattern, there's a difference between men and women, and it, it is a mutual self-giving of the other, though, yeah. that I think. So I hope that answers it. It is pat we've we've gone over time. Man. Um well I there's probably lots more that we could say. I really want to thank you for coming, but we do need to stop. Um we have had um a number of really helpful things, obviously the icebreaker, but a lot of people said they wanted more group discussion. I think that's great. Um one of the things we want to do uh next in two weeks we will be doing our last summer one and then we'll kick it off again in, in the fall on a Tuesday night. So we'll move it from Wednesdays to Tuesday nights. Uh, sign up for our email list. If you haven't done that, you can just get on there. We'll keep you posted um, about when we'll start back up there, but one of the things we're gonna do, we, we really value conversations It's probably not the ideal place for it, um, but we have small groups starting up in the fall, and so both feel free to hang out now and afterwards. Like, we'd love to talk more. There's so much in here that we could have talked about, so feel free to keep the conversation going. Uh, But also, consider joining us on the 29th of of August uh, at St. Phillips, where you'll hear more about all the different opportunities for small groups and other activities in the fall there. But again, I just really want to thank you for coming tonight. Uh, Join us for our last one in two weeks. Uh, Brian will be back with us, and we'll have a great time. So thank you again, and uh, please hang out.